What up, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 109 with Nabil Amra. You might remember him from episode 49. He is a gentleman from Minneapolis who, who quit his job as a foreign currency trader and bought a boat and entered the Golden Globe, which is a solo race around the world, nonstop, that has only been held once in the last 50 years. It's a treacherous race. All you use is navigational instruments from the past. You don't do, use any type of modern day GPS and you're solo around the world to see who can do it first. And he expected it would take about nine months. Unfortunately, he had some autopilot problems and he had to withdraw from the race within 17 days of starting the race on the, around the Canary Islands. It's an incredible story though. He went through some brutal circumstances to get back to the Canary Islands. It's a great story. He's a good dude. If you're a first-time listener, please pull out your phone and hit that subscribe button. If you like this episode, for anybody listening, please comment and rate Misfits and Rejects after the episode is over. That really helps me within iTunes or whatever podcast player you're listening to me on. If you want to kind of see these people, you can follow me on Instagram. You can also see more about me, my life, how I'm trying to design it in my own way. And if you really like Misfits and Rejects and you want to support Misfits and Rejects, you can do it on Patreon, which is a platform for fans to support content creators like myself. Any monthly donation helps. None is expected. So please feel free to go check that out. And with that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Nabil Amra. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today we have a very special guest, a return guest. Haven't spoken to him almost a year, but have been following his adventures. We have Nabil Amr on the show. He was in episode 49. He was the individual who was entering the race to sail around the world, a solo sail with only using instruments that they used back in the day. And it's called the Golden Globe. It was only done once in the last 50 years. It's a treacherous sailing race that he decided to quit everything and go after for the beautiful people of Palestine. And I wanted to bring him back on to hear about his adventure. So with that said, Nabil, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me back, brother. It's so good to hear you. Yeah, it's great to hear your voice. Do you sound in good spirits. I know that you know. leading up to the race, you had a lot of work to do on your boat um, over in Europe to boot. So you had to get over there and get your boat all prepared for this great adventure. And, um, you know, we haven't really spoken up. We didn't even really talk pre-show about it because I really wanted this to kind of come out organically for the audience to really just hear how this all went for you. So just to give the audience perspective, what happened, you know, you were back in Minneapolis, you were trading foreign currencies. You had a nine to five. You decided at some point to move on, quit it all. And you were going to kind of start this new adventure in life with this race around the world called the Golden Globe. Does that sound about right? Yeah, yeah. I guess, uh, you know, to, to really make that background crystal, I would say uh, uh, you have uh, daydreams throughout your day. At least, you know, a person like me does. I daydream endlessly. And, uh, you know, when you start to find that you're daydreaming more than you're, uh, you know, present, uh, you may as well go try to grab that. And that, that was my incessant daydream. 
and I uh, thought that the change would be worthy, you know, come hell or high water. <laughs> bad news, bad news or good news, you know, you got to take a swing once in a while. Absolutely. And, I, and you took a giant swing of the bat, my friend. I mean, let's start, let's just start for from the day that you quit your job and moved over to Europe to kind of outfit the boat with the necessary things to make this adventure happen. Like how'd that all unfold? It, it, it unfolded as a scramble, man. As you can imagine, uh, you know, there was sponsorship and what have you uh, wasn't really going to probably be in the cards for me. So it was a uh, you know, small donation and uh, self-funded kind of event. So I, I worked as late as I could. And then when I got there, I really had to hit the ground running. The boat wasn't done and, uh, you know, problems with the boat yard and, uh, you know, heckling for more money. And I'm trying to, you know, balance it all out and uh, feed all the hungry mouths around me and, uh, and, and working with the time constraint too. But uh, without much to spare, you know, we got the boat ready and, uh, they insisted I, I gave them another thousand qualifying miles uh, around the English Channel, you know, in early or I should say late uh, late spring, which you know was a, uh, I was I kept on you know, wondering like am I going to get my teeth kicked in you know before the race even starts here, but uh, it worked out well and we got to the start line in La Sable, France. So okay, so let's go through that because so you didn't you go in the feeling like you had done all the necessary miles because in episode forty nine we talked about your sail up the east coast which we thought qualified you basically for this race but when you landed they said it wasn't enough right you know it you know I'll, I'll just be honest with you we pretend like just you and me are chatting on the phone here but uh, I was uh, I I misread the rules not unlike me either you know I get a once I have to read uh, formalized rules of any kind, I get that glazed over look. Uh, I thought it was 8,000 miles total, 2,000 of which had to be solo miles. It turned out that it was 8,000 plus the 2,000, so it was 10,000 miles. Uh, and, and sure enough, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I, I misread the rules wrong, and uh, I thought that was a, a fun little episode. That is. That's hilarious, dude. You did... Speak about pre-show, you know, the kindness that you were shown when you got to France by the French people. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because you did have your back against the wall, you know, with time constraints and the boat not being ready and the race is going to run without you. So what was that like? Like, what did they, what, what did they do for you? It, it was, uh, you know, I, I think maybe it must have showed on my face, you know, and the, the weight that I lost uh, over the, uh, the preceding months of preparing and stressing. Uh, you know, I showed up to uh, La Fab de Alone, the, uh, the marina there on the dock after the Citran race, which was all the participants raced from Falmouth to, uh, to France, you know, probably a two and a half day sail. And uh, kind of it was a good shakedown for everybody and got to see the who's who. And we did uh, have a strong showing. We, were, we left five hours after the fleet because of the lack of, you know, completion with so many items. Uh, and we finished sixth. So, uh, you know, there's something to be said for that out of the fleet of 19. Uh, it, was a, it was definitely a really strong showing. And uh, the, uh, the, the people of France, you know, or at least the town of Lassab, you know, it's a very rich maritime culture. And, uh, you know, thousands of boats in their marinas, uh, mostly sail. And uh, there's uh, the Eric Taberly School of, uh, you know, boat repair and what have you. And I don't know if you know that name, but. It was a famous name in the, the 60s and 70s and, uh, and 80s, too. A French racer. He was pretty much a superstar uh, in the professional scene. 
And, uh, you know, I, I'd read all of his books, you know, and he's, uh, he passed in the late 90s. Uh, but a, a guy just showed up and he saw me sitting there, you know, having a smoking a heater and, you know, uh, lamenting my, my cruel fate because uh, not enough dollars and too much work for one guy. Uh, and I did have some friends from Minneapolis there helping too. But, you know, I, the other guys had like professional teams of nine guys, and, you know, mechanics and everything. You know, I'm just a, a lake sailor that uh, had appliers and, you know, a couple of dollars. And uh, they uh, showed up one day and said, do you need some help? And I said, yeah, but, you know, I can't afford it if that's what you're going to come and uh, pitch your services. And he's like, we will see you tomorrow. And I uh, came in. His name is Philippe uh, Perdue, and he's the director of the school. I didn't realize this. I thought he was just a guy kind of soliciting on the dock. Came in with uh, six students, uh, you know, older teenagers in early 20s. And they were swinging around the boat, top of the mast, sides, fixing uh, the head, uh, uh, finding a diesel leak and uh, plugging that stinky thing. And uh, just numerous chores that uh, would I would have been hard-pressed to ever finish uh, in time for the race. And all of it needed to be done before the start. And, uh, you know, just, just out of sheer kindness, we're looking for nothing. And, uh, you know, it brought a tear to my eye. I'm not, I'm not quick to cry, but that was... That was tear worthy. That sounds like it. And so how long did it take? Like, so this is months of them helping you or weeks? And when did they step in to really help you get this off? Yeah, you know, was, I'd say eight, eight days, seven days of, uh, of a crew of five or six students and, and the instructors at the school, too. You know, the diesel instructor, fiberglass instructor, the plumbing, plumbing guy. I mean, they, uh, the riggers, the rigger apprentices were all over the place, you know, swinging from the mast and putting patches on or rub, rub spots. Uh, you know, I mean, stuff that would take one guy, you know, all afternoon to complete one of those tasks. They would do five in a day. Uh, Change changes everything, made everything possible. It would have been a great effort, but impossible at that point. And they just, uh, they brought it for no reason, just other than love of the sport and, uh, and they were really uh, warm supporters of the, the Palestinians. And, uh, you know, they loved to see that the first Palestinian guy on their race dock. And, uh, you know, it, it was, it was, it achieved the desired result. And I met, you know, some fantastic people that I'll never forget after that. That's really beautiful. I loved, I love hearing stories like that, of just the kindness of others. Now, how long had you been working on the boat prior to them stepping in and um, helping you out? About six weeks. Wow. Okay. Six uh, six weeks, but you know, uh, it's uh, one thing if you're professional at all these jobs. I, you know, I am not, and uh, so many jobs that might have taken a pro a couple of weeks. You know, it take me. I mean, uh, take a pro a, a afternoon or something would take me. You know, two or three days, and I mean I, that's in addition to help from friends from Minneapolis. You know, a, a sail loft that I volunteer at. Uh, a couple of the people from the sail loft, uh, Sail Crafters Inc. They came out and gave me a hand and uh, sailed the, that Citran race from England to France and, uh, you know, wanted to test all the sails they made and, you know, give me pointers on, on setting them after they got a good look at them all hung up because they made them here and we sent them there. So it was, you know, it's always a, a nervous time when you pull them out of the bag. <laughs> I hope those measurements were right. And uh, everything was spot on. I, I feel like if nothing else we had a strong boat with good sails and uh you know there's still nine months worth of food on it so we might have to go uh, burn some of that up that kind of leads me to the next question i mean it sounds like 
you got there and it must have run through your mind at some point, like, what have I gotten myself into? Is this even going to be possible? I mean, did you ever lose hope? Uh, I would say, yeah, you know, I did lose hope a couple of times. And, uh, you know, find like, just like when you're having a real bad day on the water and you're alone, uh, you never know how much of it is the fatigue that makes, you know, an unpleasant situation feel like it's untenable when it really it isn't. But uh, I, I would say that when I was in England trying to get away from England and go get the self-steering gear that was destroying the schedule because it was taking too long, uh, you know, I, I kind of lost hope there. And uh, crossing the English Channel to, uh, to get the self-steering gear, the engine, uh, had a little bit of an engine fire on board and, uh, you know, the fire extinguishers went off and, you know, you wake up and... In a, in a hazy mess, uh, you know, coughing from that fire extinguisher, you know, flame retardant, uh, <laughs> and then having to sail into Guernsey Island and, uh, you know, calling for a tow when you get outside of the place. Uh, you know, all of that was unfortunate. And, you know, you just start to wonder, like, is every, uh, you know, step of the way going to just be filled with unexpected, you know, misfortune? Uh, and uh, when you start to feel like it is, you know, it really takes a, a solid kicking to the to the mind and the your 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 mindset uh just a little bit of negativity pops in and, and it is like cancer it just starts to grow and feed and uh you know you get down and then everything slows down and that doesn't help you know what the original problem was <laughs> but uh good people uh always kind of set me back straight and uh you know i i I can say I have that in spades, surrounded by great people that, you know, always, always ready to catch your fall and say, no, no, get back in there. Don't worry. Don't worry. You know, that sometimes you just need to hear somebody else say it. Wow. That's beautiful. So would you say that was your saving grace was just the people or did you have sort of a, a strategy for taking? Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, volunteers, I would say the, the, the people, the friends in your life that you went sailing on the, on the pond with coming out and, and providing a, you know, a whole nother body that can uh, take care of chores and run around and collect. I would say that was a, it would have been horribly impossible without that. But, you know, that's beyond strategy or anything like that. So not to be, not to stay on the negative note, um, but I am interested. And I think the audience would be interested in hearing this also. So what were the problems that you faced prior to even sailing? You had a, you had a boat fire. You had um, autopilot problems. This is before you even started the race. Right? Engine, uh, you know, I bought the boat. It, it didn't have autopilot. And uh, the one that I was used to and I, I thought was going to be great for the race, uh, the, the guy could, he's in La Rochelle, but he said, I can come up as far north as uh, Brest. I'll meet you in Brest. You know, it's like, you know, a couple hundred mile sail. And I needed to go uh, cut across the channel to do it. And halfway across the channel, you know, it had a little engine fire. So I, uh, you know, that's one thing you haven't even gotten the self-steering gear or made it to France. And, you know, here you are thinking that your engine is completely toasted. You know, thankfully it wasn't, uh, little things when you got to France, you know, fuel leaks that just make you nauseous down below, uh, in a rough seaway, uh, plumbing, you know, that you couldn't pump the head for whatever reason. And uh, one of my seacocks was leaking and taking on water, which I had to pump out repeatedly, which, you know, just does terrible things for your confidence. <laughs> you know, you haven't even started the race. Oh my you got a boat God. that's leaking. 
engine that, uh, you know, has engine fires. And also there was a little vacuum leak, you know, so that uh, little air leak. So you'd have to prime the, the, the fuel pump <laughs> before you could start it. You know, that was a uh, uh, problem aside from the engine fire. You know, I got pretty adept at being out in the middle of the Bay of Biscay, you know, turning a wrench around the fuel line, trying to get air out so it would start. Just, uh, you know, endless teething problems, not to be unexpected, but, uh, you know, my problem was the be expected all they want. I just only had a finite amount of time to deal with them all. Right. All right, then. So let's let's get yourself now to the, the starting line. And what was that like? I mean, the night before, did you sleep? Did it start early in the morning? Like, how did how did the, the race start? And you obviously couldn't sail away with uh, engine power, right? You had to sail off the dock with just wind? Uh, well, we, we motored off the dock, but uh, the start line was out in the bay by uh, of the city, you know, within uh, half a mile of the bay. And, uh, you know, I'll say before that, a couple of days before that, they finally gave me my green card, you know, that I needed all of their requirements and uh, and miles and uh, navigational courses, you know, everything that they wanted you to have, safety equipment, which was a huge amount of stuff, uh, and and know how to use it all. So they gave me a green card, and that was the first time I really felt like, oh, well, no matter what happens, you know, I'll be on the start line, uh, which has been a victory in itself. I, I would have never said that before this, but just getting there, I mean, it almost broke me. That was 15 pounds lighter and, you know, uh, it, not getting more than five hours a night of sleep just because of the, the work schedule. Thankfully I, I can sleep whenever, however, you know, I never, uh, no matter what's got a guy down, I can close my eyes and uh, disappear very quickly. So I'm blessed there helps on the boat too but yeah at the start line uh you know it was a surreal experience seeing boats from uh from the past that you've read all about and read all their stories like so haley the, the race winner from 50 years ago was there and joshua the steel 39 foot catch of uh, bernard Matessier, uh also formed the other end of the uh, the goal post on the starting line uh, and there was a big French uh, training ships, you know, square riggers from yesteryear. Uh, yeah, there was hundreds of ships all out there, helicopters. And, you know, all I could think about is don't show your, your rookie mistake. Don't go hitting anybody. <laughs> don't hit anybody. <laughs> Everything will be fine if you can get through without touching anyone. Uh, and I did. And uh, the race started. And, you know, my family was out there on a, on a boat. The Taberley School uh, took them out in one of their launches. That was really nice. Uh, I saw the the promenade on the way out of the marina. You know, uh, fans had you know Palestinian flags for uh, you know for hundreds of yards, just uh, hundreds of them. It's uh, you know nothing warmed my heart more than that. It felt like mission accomplished right there. Uh, everything else is bonus. <laughs> uh, yeah, again, such a great description of how that must have felt for you. But at the same time, you have the daunting reality that. You, you got a race shred and you have nine months potentially on the sea by yourself. I mean, how does that feel for you? Well, uh, you know, I, I'll be honest with you. you while uh, you, you asked me three months before that, you know, nothing but nervous and trepidation uh, would, would, would have been things that I, I felt. But at the start line, I was so happy to be away from, from humanity for a little bit. You know, <laughs> I had, uh, 
I was in too much contact, maybe, you know, on the, on the docks, uh, the French are huge sailing fans and, uh, they, they love a good race. And so the boardwalks were filled daily with, with fans and, you know, they're, they're assertive, you know, they're, they want to, they want in, they want to ask you some questions. They want to want you to sign their book. They want you to come, you know, let them in the, on the boat and have a look around <laughs> while you're working, you know, it, it, it made, made life hard, but of course, uh, the fans are, they're everything so you know you you do what you got to do and uh, the people were so nice so you know it was your way of trying to give back anything you could uh but when the race started man i had relief i was like finally a little peace and quiet let's get some little quality shut eye a little peace and quiet this is going to be nice at least for a few days uh and i i will say the first couple of days weren't restful uh, it was high traffic there, you know, from the, the race, you, at any one time you could see at least three or four boats, uh, scattered about, you know, on the horizon maybe, but, uh, but they're there, uh, and they're your race competitors and, uh, and, uh, brothers and sisters in arms there. And, uh, you know, you didn't, you were keeping an eye on everybody. You could kind of judge how far North or how far South, what line they were taking to make it around Cape Finisterre and, and, you know, get through the Bay Biscay. Uh, I'm unfamiliar with that particular pond. You know, it has a fearsome reputation of either far too much wind or not enough. And, uh, you know, I got a little taste of both of that on the trying to get out of there. But, uh, you know, it was interesting to be in such close contact with uh, the other participants. You know, you could raise them on the VHF and hit the breeze a little bit, you know, if they were within hearing distance. And uh, middle of the night, just passing maybe 50 yards from one another. <laughs> Found that to be funny. I just stuck my head up in the middle of the night, you know, to see which way the wind blows. And, and there goes one of your competitors almost in the opposite direction, trying to tack out of the bay. Uh, you know, that, that part was, was uh, still very pleasant. And uh, I would say by the third or fourth day, I got my sea routine, you know, when you everything starts to feel good. You just kind of have your steady routine and it's working. You know, you're, you're ready for the long haul. I was ready. I was happy to be on the boat for 10 months, you know, a year at that point, I, I was fully committed and telling myself whenever you felt loneliness, just to, well, I'm going home. You know, this is, it's just the long way, but this is the way home. So faster you do it, the quicker it's done. How about that? That's a great strategy. So, just for the audience, so the Golden Globe is a race around the world, solo sail, using only old-school methods of navigation. So you're not using GPS. You're not using anything but maps and a sextant. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, you know, and a trailing patent log, you know, a little propeller that spins and gives you, like, an odometer reading. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, all caveman stuff. And, uh, you know, I think uh, the part that we can't forget, too, is the, the, the route that is chosen is basically the the old clipper route, you know, for the grain traders and wool traders from, you know, uh, the sailing ship era uh, of the 19th to 18th century it goes around the Southern Ocean uh, and it goes east about because those winds are uh, the prevailing westerlies howl down there and blow you in that direction relentlessly. So uh, I think that that is probably was the biggest wild card of this race was the route. This isn't going through the Suez Canal and, you know, Panama. Uh, it is a uh, a treacherous strip of ocean, which has proven itself through the course of the race with the number of dismastings and rollings. And uh, I mean, more than half of the field has been wiped out of the race and uh, we're just barely getting close to halfway done. 
Wow. Is that so? Yeah, let's talk about that. So, how many people left with you? How many sailors were there in this race when you left? 19. 19 sailors left. And that and, was, what uh, was the date on that? That was like June 1st or July? That was July 1st. July 1st. Okay, so 19 July 1st sailed out of the bay. And how many are left at this point in the race? I think there is eight left right now. And you just said that they've had and, people lose their mass, people have rolled. Um, oh, yeah, broke their back and rolled, uh, you know, a number of times and completely uh, demasted the deck swept clean on uh, a broke, huge southern ocean storm. Broke their back of their body? Yes, yes. The uh, the Indian captain, who's a, a commander in the Indian Navy, uh, uh, Abolish uh, Tomé, he got rolled in uh dismasted and uh, you know now they they flew him home but he's uh, got some hardware in his spine uh but he was uh down and out for three days while uh, another racer that also was demasted used his jerry rig trying to sail to him to, to give him a hand was within 30 miles but uh a, a big freighter picked him up picked them both up actually and both of their boats are left blowing towards australia right now so they just had to abandon then ship. there was the yeah, they had to abandon ship, absolutely. After all that preparation, I'm sure that they were uh, devastated, like, you know, just like anything. But, uh, uh, and before that, when they first got to the Southern Ocean, uh, Ari Vig, the Norwegian, uh, and he's a salty old seaman, you know, uh, he's like a 60 year old guy that spent, you know, 40 years on the water, you know, 50. Uh, it's all he does and all he knows, and he's good at it. He was uh, fixing his self steering gear near uh, Cape Town. And, uh, and he was hove to, which is a thing you can do with sailboats to make him kind of pause in the water. And uh, it's always been thought of as a good storm strategy or uh, because it, it puts the boat in a kind of a safe, neutral position. Uh, he, you know, people never thought that you could get rolled when you are hove to. And he proved the fact that you can actually. He said he was hove to and he was rolled and he uh, Badly bruised, but uh, nothing broken. And he he, uh, he he put up his jerry rig and uh, proceeded on to Cape Town. Uh, and big uh, freighters came by and said they could pick him up or whatever. And uh, you know, even his boat too. And and he refused it. Said no, thank you. I'll make my way to, under my own power. You know, just a salty, uh, accomplished seaman. And uh, you know, pulled it off and got back in. But you know, the race was over for him. But uh, as he said, I'm just surprised. I didn't think you could roll being hove to, and you know, sure enough, now we know that you can. Oh my gosh! So wh- then, what was the criteria to call it quits? Like, you just can't get to land if you got, if you touch land, you're out. Like, how did that work? Well, yes, if you uh, you know you're out of the uh, original Golden Globe race, uh, there is a couple uh, a different class. They said if you do have one stop of of any kind, you could uh, call yourself in the Chichester class, which was uh, another English uh, name of an English sailor who went around the world with one stop uh, before the original Golden Globe. Uh, a couple of guys did join that class, and uh, and then you know got kind of wiped out a little bit further after that. Uh, and I have complete sympathies for for them all because I was after putting this much into something, and then when you come to that stark realization that you are you cannot go on you know without just making a spectacle of yourself it's uh it's devastating 
you know, I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, big picture, two and a half years worth of work and you just realize, oh, it's over, you know, it's, uh, you know, uncontrollable sobbing is going to happen, I can guarantee you. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, when that happened to you and how it went down? Absolutely. You know, I was, uh, I was making a good run of it down the, the coast of Portugal. I was uh, hanging out in my, you know, between the 10th and 12th spot on the race, which, which I was really proud of, you know, a mid-pack uh, number, knowing that, you know, most of these guys, all of these guys were vastly more accomplished than me in the world of sailing. Uh, so I was, I was proud of myself. I, you know, you, you weren't last, you were in the, in the mid pack and, uh, and that a couple of people had already retired by then. And so I thought, well, if nothing else happens, you know, you, you weren't the first to quit, you know, I hate quitting, uh, anything, but, uh, passing by the opening of Gibraltar and uh, being 70 miles off the, the coast of, uh, Casablanca, you know, seeing these romantic names on the charts while you're uh, doing your sun sights and figuring out where you are, uh, you know, the routine of, of, of your day. Uh, I was happy as a clam and maybe to sound selfish, but you know, other than the people in your life, uh, I wasn't missing anything on land. It was, it was a fantastic experience. Uh, and I was very happy. Uh, and then we got to the Canary Islands. There was a, a film drop, they came out in a boat and, you know, asked you some questions and some film from you and any letters you'd written. And uh, then you went between the islands. Now, we're talking July, mid-July. This is a region famous for their catabatic winds, which uh, Hawaii and the Canaries are known for. You know, the big, tall volcanoes, the wind funnels in between them. And you get 35, 40 knots in between them and a 15-foot flat face sea. Uh, comes up nothing, and it, it felt like a little hurricane in there, a little wind tunnel, uh, and uh, was blowing me down when just as uh, I was hoping, and uh, it was just a party and a pleasure going downwind, dead downwind, and that kind of breeze, and the boat is at call speed, and you're surfing down to you know little wavelets, and then in the middle of the night, I uh, oh, and I I. I saw one one boat in the race and uh you know made good way past them and I'm like this is going to be the start of the race for me i feel like i figured out the boat on all points of sail and now was my time to play miss pac-man and go gobble up everybody in front you know or at least try to make a good showing for yourself and you know 10 hours after making that uh, commitment in my mind uh, i wake up in the middle of the night to the boat sideways to these uh waves uh, I didn't run out there and think it just got, you know, all kitty wampus and I straightened it out and went back to sleep and within 10 seconds, you know, it was doing the same thing again and can't be broad, broadside to a big fat sea like that. Uh, so I turned on the lights to see what the problem is and I saw myself steering gear, you know, a stainless steel tubing device off the back with, with fins, one in the water and one in the air a mechanical device that does all the steering, you know, I mean, it would be impossible to go for this many days without something like that. You know, it, uh, if you're just a slave to the killer, it's my least favorite sailing. I actually hate it being stuck at the wheel. It usually means something bad happens. <laughs> and, uh, I realized that thing was broke beyond my ability to repair it. I think I sent a note to the race organizer saying like, you know, it, it broke. I'm just going to sleep this, uh, sleep on this and come up with some ideas. 
there was no sleep to be had, man. I was staring at that thing uh, in what was a vicious wind, and I was hove to, and uh, and then I realized, you know, after working on it for three or four hours and whittling down a boat hook to shove in the pipe and lash it down, it just wasn't going to work. So I had grim choices, you know. Where are you going to go? You're 150 miles past the Canaries, but the wind is stone cold killer right in your teeth uh with the big waves uh, big swell to boot uh, you know beating back into that for 150 miles would uh be borderline impossible i've always read nobody sails into a 35 knot breeze and expects to make much headway especially with the sea and uh, to go the other way in the more sympathetic direction would uh and along the race route would be the cape verde islands it's almost a thousand miles away uh, and I have known from my East Coast journey what happens after eight days with no self-steering gear. You're a shadow of the man that started, you know, that it drains you. When you're not going forward, uh, the fuse inside of you lights, the frustration fuse. And, uh, and when you are sailing in a direction, it means that you're sitting out there on the wheel, toiling, the, you know, elements. Uh, and it's, it's a miserable thing. Uh, and it's, unique to a solo sailor because if there was two people on the boat and something like that broke, you just laugh and each take your turn at the wheel and you'd get to wherever you're going. So with one person, it becomes a catastrophe. Uh, and, uh, I chose, they were both grim choices, but I wasn't going to make a spectacle of myself with, uh, you know, 15 days of hand steering. Uh, because what would happen if you get to Cape Verde Islands, you'd probably find the first sandy beach and just ramp it up in there and just try to get off. <laughs> you know, like a rat on the ship. You just you let me off of this thing. Yeah. So I went back to the Canaries, and it was uh, you know 65 hours at the wheel, and it was brutal. And uh, I never been seasick. I now have sympathies for all of those sufferers out there. I used to almost started to think in a cocky way, like it must be a malady of the mind. You know, it must be the weak mind or something. You know. <laughs> Now that serves me right that I got a nice taste of it after all that chit chat. Uh, it was after 35 hours, so I was already beat up and I uh, went down below to change my socks for some dry socks and you know, projectile vomited. I, I couldn't even make it to the three feet to the toilet, you know, all over your, your bedding. And uh, I realized, oh, now we're going to add this to the party too for another 40 hours. So I, 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 I got back to the Canaries. And uh, I was a shadow of the person that, that started that fight. And it's unfortunate because when I got to the Canaries, I was so well-rested in the beginning. I was ready to take on the world. And a uh, good thing, because I needed that energy to fight back. Uh, but when I got back, I slept for four days. And uh, when I pulled into the marina, I mean, I was frantic on the radio saying, have somebody grab me, you know, I'm coming in under reduced faculties here. <laughs> And, uh, you know, there was a guy waiting for me telling me like, Oh, tranquilo, tranquilo, you know, and he was showing, you know, giving me the look like, Oh, settle down, man. Look at you. You look feral. And I, I did. I looked, uh, I looked pretty rough and it's pretty emotional. You know, it was, uh, a trying fight back. And I, I had already realized, you know, 20 hours before making it to the islands that, uh, that killed me. Uh, and, uh, I, I wasn't going to be able to get the parts there and, I just, uh, I, I retired. I, I really had no choice. And, uh, you know, and you end up beating yourself up or did you do everything you could have? What if you wrapped fiberglass around it in addition to that, you know, boat hook inside of that? Could that have helped? 
you know, no, probably not, but you're going to keep on kicking yourself. And people online were like, maybe you didn't know how to use the thing, you know. And, you know, that was hurtful because I had uh, many, many hours with the device. And there was two other ones in the race. One was on the race leader's boat and another on the Italian's uh, boat who uh, who started uh, just after the original race start. And uh, I knew that it, this was going to happen to both of them. I said it. I said it's going to break in the same way, and it's going to happen the next time they have a strong following sea with a breeze from behind. Uh, it's going to get taxed. And uh, because it is a lightweight gear that steers really nicely, even in a faint wind, where the other gears were heavy, more robust on the other boats, but if the breeze was less than six miles an hour, you'd have to hand steer or you're just not going anywhere. It wouldn't register. Uh, and the other two did break. On the race leader's boat, it broke. He was 1,500 miles away from Cape Town, and people said, oh, he's going to get there and make repairs and, and take off again. And I laughed and said, no way. Nobody understands what he's going to look like after 15 days of hand steering, you know, <laughs> or, or, or yeah, 15 days, about 16 days. I think it took him. He's going to be a shadow of the guy when he arrives. And, uh, you know, he, the race was done for him. He got back in and that was kind of the end of that. Uh, and then the Italian has broken the same spot. Mine did as well. And, uh, he continued on to Brazil and, uh, put in there and ended his race. And I take a little, Solace in the fact that both of them are, are vastly more accomplished as far as sailing goes than myself. And it, you know, had the same net effect on them as myself. So all three of those particular brand of self-steering gears were taken out of the race by a breakage in the same spot. Wow. You know, I wish the race would have lasted longer for me, you know, and that was probably why I balled extra hard. You know, I thought to myself, I just after that dealing with humanity on such a, you know, big scale for the last two months, only getting two weeks to, you know, recuperate, well, just wasn't enough. Uh, you know, then again, it, it couldn't have happened in a better place unless it happened right on top of the Canary Islands instead of 150 miles south of them. Because uh, after the Canaries, there's not much for land out there. You know, you're going to be... You're going to be all on your own there for a while. Uh, there's no real good amount of islands or at least nothing big to find. And uh, that's a big thing when you're only able to make 50 miles a day, you know, handscape. Mm. So I, I had no choice. I really feel like I, I probably did the uh, the conservative choice and island pick. And, uh, you know, if I, I look back on it and say, well, what would I have done differently? You know, maybe I would have tried to rest longer after the, you know, getting it fixed and, and jump back in. But uh, I, I knew when I tried to heave to south of the islands, I was making, you know, three knots in drift going in the wrong way. And, uh, you know, for a three-hour nap that wasn't very restful, you were going to lose, you know, five hours worth of sailing and distance made good. So I just bit the bullet and said, I think I'm going to have to do this all in one bite. You know, I'm going to have to make a 100% effort here. It took a hundred percent effort. And, uh, you know, my girlfriend was like, maybe you should probably should have just taken a nap, even if you did lose the ground. But you know, the mind doesn't work like that. When you see uh catastrophe unfolding in front of you, uh, you know, the last thing 
I could think about is, of course, uh, settling in for you know a four-hour nap. It just it just seemed too crucial. Yeah, I think you went with your intuition, man. I mean, it sounds like you absolutely absolutely made the right choice, and you're a fucking hero to me in the audience, dude. Like, that's incredible. And just even to get back to the Canaries, like, what are you just you're just tacking at a slow clip the whole way back over and over again? Uh, yes, and, and it was uh, I I was on a starboard tack and uh, realized you know that I could only get about sixty degrees close to the wind, and the wind was coming exactly from the Canaries. So I ended up having to take a really broad tack, you know, and, and the reason why I couldn't get much tighter to the wind was, of course, because it was blowing like stink, you know, blowing dogs off the chain. And uh, there was a 15-foot sea, which I was rejoicing, sailing dead downwind. And I'm like, oh, this is fun. What a wild ride, wet and wild. Uh, the last thing you think of when you're saying stuff like that is I couldn't imagine turning around and going in the opposite direction. And, you know, talk about changing this from a fun experience to an exercise in brutality that's uh, that was a choice we uh, we had to go with and uh you know i can i still have some flashbacks of resting my arms and head on the on the wheel you know just trying to uh stay somewhat uh conscious and you know thinking that making deals with myself just, just a little bit further and you'll get into the shadow of the volcano just a little bit further, you know because you're trying to get out of this huge sea <laughs> because it was, you know, breaking over the front of the, uh, you know, the, the, the port quarter, uh, and you know, it was a big sea, and it was wet, and it was very bumpy, and uh, I had storm jib up, no main, and a double reef mizzen, so I had like, you know, your bedspread of uh, canvas up in total, and uh, still making, you know, four or five knots, but. 60 degrees away from the heading I wanted. So that's what really made it take so, so damn long. Now, what's the protocol for like a mindset like that in a situation that you're in? Like, are you drinking heavily? Are you smoking heavily? Is that even an option? Like, what what are you doing? Yes, uh, you know, I would say uh, I did. Uh, I had some of my uh, herbal medicines uh, that are smokable on board, and I did... Uh, Use that at least initially, just to take my mind away from the brutality that was my reality. And uh, then uh, I gave that up, and it just went into straight uh, nicotine <laughs> with chews uh, of Nescafe, uh, instant coffee, pretty much putting in a big lipper, uh, just anything, drinking it down with water. I did not have a bowel movement for six days after, uh, in total, you know, I mean, you stop eating, everything shuts down. You stop drinking, uh, eating, sleeping, shitting, all of that. Next thing you can pee, none of that is happening. All you're doing is driving the ship. And, uh, you know, it took five, four days for my body to find some uh, reasonable normality came back to me. You know, it was, it was, uh, it was a hundred percent effort, man. I left nothing on the table on the way back for me. Maybe the race started when I when the gear broke in a, in many respects because uh, it was it was a pleasurable experience up to that point and then and then that's when the rubber met the road <laughs> you know, it was <laughs> you're confronted with grim choices but one of them's got to be made and you're the one that's going to carry it out you know and that's why I couldn't rest I had to get that all I could think about is if you were watching the tracker. And you saw me get close to the canaries and then stop. And then the boat just went with the wind and drifted back down. 
you could know then that I gave it 100% and I collapsed, and now I'm just going to be swept out the sea. Which, in the end of the day, you have nine months worth of food and all that good stuff. So, I mean, it shouldn't be the end of the world. But, you know, your mindset when you're alone on the boat is uh, it changes when things like that happen. You know, you have to think of ultimately safety, number one. You know, hero story is great and all, but it's even better when the guy can come back. You know, I, you're not, I'm, I wasn't trying to be anybody's hero there. I just truly wanted to uh, get back under my own power without asking for help. You know, it's a solo race and these people all uh, prize their self-sufficiency. And, uh, you know, there would be some, you know, loss of pride and maybe some shame and embarrassment if I was asking for help. Uh, and I really wanted to avoid that, uh, at all costs. And, you know, so I satisfied myself there, but I was pretty close, man. <laughs> there wasn't anything left. What is the reality of it becoming like a dire situation for you under those circumstances? Like, were you fearful for your life? Like for somebody who doesn't sail, like what are the circumstances like really in that kind of situation for someone who's trying to get back to where you're trying to get back to? Um, you know, I won't say I was uh, fearful for my life just because I, well, maybe I was, but uh, I was more afraid of just the damage I was going to do to myself to get back. I know that if put in a nasty position and life is on the line, I can stay up for four days if I have to and probably have like 40% functionality by the end. Uh, I can I can do that. You know, it, it, wears, on, it wears a soul thin, what it does. And, uh, you know, your emotions become the highs and lows, just become rapid, rapid switching. You know, you're almost outside of yourself just looking at the, the sobbing mess and, you know, you don't even know you, you know, you hope to never see that guy again. <laughs> like, I don't know who this guy is, but I don't, I don't want to share the boat with him. Uh, it, uh, you just have to say, you know, this is what needs to be done. And I'm the only one here, you know, and that was a common theme throughout my solo sailing is, uh, you know, the boat makes a noise and you know what it needs. Maybe it needs a reef and you're down, laying down. I usually just joke with myself out loud. I'll usually say like, well, if you don't want to do it, ain't nobody going to do it, man. (laughs) Better get up and do it, you know, and you don't want to wake up, but you know, you should, uh, the the work has to be done. That's all there is to it. And there's only one person. So you know, who's going to do it. Uh, so you do it. And, And at the end of the day, you are, while well, the boat is giving you this ultimate freedom uh, to see a world that not many get to see and all of its beauty and wildlife, uh, it does require something of you. In fact, you maybe even become a slave to the ship, but uh, it's still a fair trade and uh, it can be a wonderful relationship between sailor and ship. I mean, yeah, it sounds deep. All hands with the it sounds ship. like a deep, uh, deep relationship you get to share with that ship after that experience. Now, getting back to the Canaries, obviously you were wiped out. You slept for four days. You said um, Canaries are a beautiful place. Like, did you get to enjoy it at all, or was the whole time just like, fuck, this sucks? Uh, for me, the Canaries uh, were closer to the latter. Uh, you know, I didn't really get to explore the volcano. I was in its shadow the whole time. Uh, you know, there was a, a Russian guy anchored a few boats away in the marina, and he came up to me later and he goes, every morning I see you get up and you try to do something on the boat and then you, you sit down and it's half done and then you lay down. Why don't you just lay down? You know, he's like, I saw your story online. 
why do you keep on trying to do something? You know, and you felt like uh, you were being lazy, but you just had no energy. And later I found out from others that that was a normal feeling after, you know, what I uh, what I endured. And it just requires a deep, a deep rest, as much mentally as it is physical. And, uh, and, and, you know, I came back to familiar surroundings. I left the boat in the Canaries. The, uh, the mooring spots were so tight uh, that the boats pretty much are jostling together and very unrestful. Uh, and it was hot. And uh, so, you know, I left. I came back to Minneapolis. I finished all those little chores that I left uncompleted, you know, that were going to cause me issues when I got home. And I uh, recently finished up the, the worry list. And I'm going to go fly back out to the Canaries and uh, as we're nearing the end of the hurricane season and bring that boat closer to home uh, so that I can at least enjoy for, for a bit here since it's a new sails and fully equipped and I have the parts to fix it. And I'm going to get an electronic autopilot. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, you know, this isn't 1968 anymore and the race rules don't apply. I, I want both. Uh, and, uh, you know, I have some unfinished business with the boat, so... I'm going to go do that alone and, and bring it from the Canaries to uh, maybe Martinique or you know, Caribbean or Florida, thereabouts, someplace where I can have a direct flight and, uh, and go. And, uh, you know, I didn't expect to be back till April or May, so I feel like uh, I'm not going to get a job, you know, and I can probably survive till then. I'm going to go enjoy uh, myself on that boat, and why not? Of course, dude. That's beautiful. So yeah, you're gonna sail, but you're gonna fly back to the Canaries and sail it back to the Caribbean, where you'll then have it in a, a direct shot from Minneapolis to enjoy until it's time to think about your next play in life. Does that sound correct? It does, you know. And of course, they're gonna run this race again in, in three and a half years from now, you know. And while I can't say that I would take part in it because my girlfriend would leave me instantly after all of this, uh, uh, you know, I, I can't also help but think i have some unfinished business with that as well but that maybe is a conversation for another day <laughs> Ooh, that sounds good for this podcast we'll talk about that in another few years my friend we'll bring you back on and see where you're at excellent so that that you know pretty much the uh, my adventure ended three uh, you know 17 days after the start you know and uh, three others had already exited the race and then uh, you know after that another five have gone uh and that's not over yet you know the, the the 74-year-old Frenchman, the oldest one in the fleet, is uh, leading with a 2,000-mile spread on second place. And he's a whole other weather system ahead, and he just passed by uh, New Zealand. And he's bragging about, you know, the lovely weather and eating El Fresco and, uh, <laughs> while the other guys behind him are in uh, pretty much hurricane-force winds and getting their teeth kicked in. And uh, funny, you know, the difference that a couple of thousand miles can make. Wow, dude. So... The audience who's listening right now, it's called the Golden Globe. They can look it up online, um, and you can follow these people on a tracker. Is that correct? Yeah, it's a, the, the, the YB3 tracker. I think you can get the app, and uh, you know you can use the fast-forward feature and start it from the beginning of the race and see where all the boats are. Uh, it's pretty neat, pretty neat app, actually, for the race. You know, it's a, it's a hard race to be a spectator of, but uh, with that app and you know the, the weekly... Uh, uh, Facebook uh, chats and podcasts that they have with uh, interviews with some of the racers on their high frequency radios and and what have you. It's uh, it's pretty interesting. They're keeping everybody involved. Now, do you know, my heart goes out with all those guys out there. I mean, I, I watch it uh, intently, just to, you know, thinking about you know 
the suffering and, and also the joys that they're having. I saw dolphins, man, I saw hundreds of dolphins off the coast of Portugal. And they are smart. They are human smart. I thought monkey smart, but now I think they're human smart. They, they messed with me. You know, they were playing jokes on me. They were warning me of hazards. Uh, they warned me that I, I was going to catch a bird, you know, or, <laughs> and I did on my fishing line, trolling line. And I had to reel them in and perform surgery on this uh, huge fish. He was the size of a wild turkey, you know, and this guy, I got him on the boat and he's hissing. And I had to throw my uh, shirt over his head to, uh, you know, to calm him down while I took the hook out of his foot. And, uh, and when I threw him back in, the dolphins came back and were jumping for joy after they checked him out. <laughs> it's crazy. And, and they were doing their, their sideways head slap just before I caught him. I think they were trying to give me the heads up. And uh, they, they also warned me when I was getting close to a reef. They were doing the same weird head slap and then veering to the right. Different ones. All of them doing it, in, you know, one after the next. And then when I finally tapped, uh, they, uh, you know, they, they jumped and twirled in the air. It was like celebratory. It, maybe it's all in your head. You know, maybe when you're alone for too long, you know, you uh, think like that. But I, I, I'm... Feel like I know what I saw, and uh, the way they were swim sideways, and their big eyeball would stare at yours, and I could sit there and stare at them for days. It was great. What Taylor's a, best friend. What a beautiful connection that is to the sea and just your environment, man. I can really feel that you're connected right there. It was beautiful. I mean, I, uh, priceless experience. Um, now, just one more thing, you know, to touch upon from episode forty-nine. You had talked about when you did finish, you had thoughts of maybe like. You know, starting a new life um, down in Costa Rica, maybe. You mentioned a few other spots. You know, I, we, we have a mutual friend in Costa Rica, Judd Dunham, another episode. But um, where you're at now, I mean, I, obviously you have this new adventure that you're going to go and complete in your own way. Taking well, I'm, to the like I said, I will go to the Caribbean. I'll enjoy that for, uh, you know, uh, I, I feel like I, I have a, a window of opportunity here before I have to put on my big boy pants and, uh, you know, get back to making hay. Uh, which would be to, to go enjoy the boat wherever the, you know, the winds take me until, uh, you know, April, May, June, thereabouts. And then I'll have to come up with my, uh, the, the new plan will have to, you know, be initiated, which, which I do still think I, I want to go down to Costa Rica and I probably will this winter and, uh, you know, check out, check out Flamingo Bay and, uh, Tamarindo and where, uh, you know, where you and Judd, uh, kick a can around and uh, it's, it's been a beautiful place in my visits, and I don't know. I, I have an open mind. I have a lot of different avenues a guy could take. All right. So then, I mean, are you also considering, you know, staying in Minneapolis and, and going back to the old job or trying to get a new job there, or are you just open to anything? No. You know, I, I even went and visited the people from the old shop, and uh, while it was, you know, warm and uh, it was good to chat, uh, I felt nothing. I, I can't – I don't think I can go back to the desk. I don't think that can happen for me. Uh, you know, maybe I, I, as the money slowly dwindles down, maybe I would, you know, I would, I would probably entertain it even more, but no, just, uh, I can't do that. So, uh, something with a little bit more satisfaction, uh, even if it's a lesson that's not about the money, you know, just, uh, existing and being happy would far outweigh, uh, sitting at a desk in a cold city and, you know, trying to make a buck. Uh, there's got to be something else to it. Well, that's beautifully said, Nabil. I mean, what an epic adventure. I mean, thank you for sharing with us. You know, what a courageous 
swing of the bat, dude. Um, I know you still have a bone to pick with uh, yourself and the C, so we wish you all the best, and thank you for joining us for this episode. Oh, thank you, brother. I appreciate you taking the time and giving me a ring, and I uh, uh, love the podcast, and, uh, you know, consider me a, a faithful listener as well. Absolutely, and just I know you, you have a big warm feeling for the people of france we definitely want to acknowledge them at the end of this episode just you know thank thank them for all the uh help they gave you and and just for the listeners to know like you're doing this for palestine you know palestine is a country that is in constant turmoil with israel and i, I know that's a big point that you wanted to make um during episode 49 which is that you were doing this for the people of palestine and they gave me so much moral support you know and uh, and encouragement and uh and their the, their pride in uh, you know being represented in an international venue, an international race when uh, they're usually kept from it uh, with the lack of visas and uh, travel restrictions, you know, just trying to erase the people. Uh, they were uh, so warm and uh, and thankful, and uh, really, it's, it's my thanks to them for you know instilling a, a, a bit of a stiff spine in me, which is a characteristic of that entire uh, people. So uh, I thank them beautiful we love you thank you for joining us my pleasure brother thank you awesome thank you so much nabil for joining us and taking us through that candid detailed adventure you went on i mean what perseverance what amount of commitment you need to have to subject yourself to those kind of conditions i take my hat off to you brother you're a huge inspiration to myself and the misfits and rejects audience Please remember to follow us on Instagram at Misfits and Rejects. Please feel free to support Misfits and Rejects on Patreon, which is at or at Misfits and Rejects on Patreon. If you're a first-time listener, please pull out your phone and subscribe to Misfits and Rejects. Comment and rate Misfits and Rejects as well. That really helps me within the ratings on iTunes. And with that said, please remember, I think you're all so very, very beautiful. I look forward to hearing from you at some point. If you want to ever share a story with Misfits and Rejects and the audience, we'd love to hear from you and get you on the show. So please feel free to reach out. Chapin at Misfits and Rejects. And until next time, ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspire you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.